Let's take our Bibles, please, at this time and turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. You have a wonderful theme here, Let Your Light So Shine, from Matthew 5.16. And so we're going to be talking about that quite a bit this week. You know, if ever there's been a time where your light needs to shine, it's the day and age in which we're, <clears throat> we're living in. These are, no doubt, the last days. And when I was Born back in 1960, I had absolutely no idea that uh, the world would be like it is today and that this generation quite likely might be the generation that sees the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I honestly believe we are living in those days. I think it's getting more apparent by the year and it's accelerating even in these last several years here. And so I'd like to talk today about uh, staying faithful in the last days. And here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, just looking at the first three verses, Paul writes to a a baby church and he says, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him, that you be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed the son of perdition. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you now for this good church. We thank you for their faithfulness for all these years and how your hand has been on them and you've used them. And Father, we just pray now that they would receive with joy tonight an admonition to stay faithful in these last days and to let their light so shine in these dark days in which we're living in. We pray for your help. We ask it all now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, Pastor Hammett mentioned a group of, uh, of church folks that are over in the Holy Land right now. I actually was over there about a, a month and a half ago, a long story short. I won't get into it. But uh, when I was there, I made a point of taking a picture of a motel over there known as the Motel of the Seven Arches. And there's quite a story behind this. If you know where the Temple Mount is and you go down toward the east or in the Kidron Valley and you go up the slope toward the Mount of Olives, that's where Christ went back to heaven from after he finished his earthly ministry. Well, of course, Israel got their land back in 1948 and probably about 15 years later, tourists were starting to come back. And and so there was a a wise developer who said, you know what, I'm going to build a motel on the Mount of Olives and look back toward the west where you see that gold dome, the Dome of the Rock, and you'd have this panoramic view of it from this motel, the Seven Arches there. And so he hired a seismographing crew to come in and they took soil samples and they did their seismographing and then they looked for all kinds of fault lines and it came back to the developer and said, we highly advise you not to build your motel here. And he said, well, why? And, the, and the, the, the scientist, the engineer said this. He said, there's a huge fault line running from right up top here, the Mount of Olives, down through the Kidron Valley and right up to the Eastern Gate. He said, I would not recommend you build your motel here. Well, you know, if, if that developer had just read the Bible, he would have known that already because 2,700 years ago, we're talking 700 years before the time of Christ, the Bible speaks of Christ coming back in Zechariah 14.4. And it says, and his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof, toward the east and toward the west, and there shall be a very great valley. And half of the mountain shall remove toward the north, 
and half of it toward the south. That day is coming, folks, and the fault line is already there. Things are in place. Christ is coming back again. Now, before Christ ascended back up to heaven, he was on the Temple Mount. He was uh, looking over the, the buildings there of the recently refurbished temple at the hands of, of Herod. And his disciples, very impressed by this, were showing him these buildings. And, and Christ said, see all these things? Not, not one stone should be left upon another. And in a very short time, about, about 40 years later, that came to pass when they destroyed that temple in 70 A.D., and so that kind of riled the apostles, and to them, you know, this magnificent temple coming down, that, that must mark the end of the world. And so they asked him, what's it going to be like when you come back? And he began to talk about some things in both Luke uh, 21 and Matthew 24. He said, in the end times, men's hearts should be failing them for fear. That word fear there meaning kind of a, a, a stressful fear. You know, we live in a very stressful day and age, don't we? A day and age very different from the world my grandpa and grandma grew up in. And, and men's hearts today are failing them for stress. You know, they spend about 260 to $70 billion every year here just in America for heart disease. Men's hearts are failing them for fear. Christ talked also about earthquakes in diverse places in that text. You know that from 500 A.D. up until about uh, 1500 A.D., there were a total of, of recorded 21 earthquakes, major earthquakes throughout the world. Now, since 1983, there's somewhere between 40 and 50 earthquakes every year. You know, we also talked about famine. You know, if you go back uh, about 4,500 B.C. to the time of the flood, you find our civilization starting over with eight people. And, and they've done the calculating. What should the world's population be today if you had you know, really six people starting over and, and reproducing and you throw in, you know, plagues and, and flus and all kinds of viruses and so on. And, and they said, well, with world wars and everything else, the world's population today should be somewhere around 8 billion. And that's exactly what it is. But you know that they say within the next 38 years, that's going to double. And you say, where's that food going to come from? Christ talked about famines in the end times. And, and then Daniel talked about the end times when people shall run to and fro. We live in a very mobile society, don't we? My grandpa and grandma lived in Grand Forks County, just north of us. I don't think they ever left the county. My folks traveled around a little bit. Now today, we fly around the world. I mean, you've got folks over in Tel Aviv right now. I just received a, a notice from them. You can have breakfast in L.A. You can have lunch in New York City. You can have supper in Paris. I mean, it's a different day. People are running to and fro. And then that same passage in Daniel also talked about knowledge increasing. I don't even have to go there. This, this is the information age. We, we have it all. You can ask your phone anything. I, I'll never forget the first time somebody said, ask your phone a question. I said, okay, who won the 1991 World Series? And it, it goes, the Minnesota Twins beat the Atlanta Braves in seven games. Go, you got to be kidding me. You have all that information at your fingertips right now. They say knowledge is increasing right now to the tune of 2,000 typewritten pages coming out every single day of new technology. And so we have no question that lines up with the signs of the times. And then there are things that have happened even in my lifetime and, and the development of, say, satellite transmission. 
And for years, they talked about how the whole world could see those two witnesses during the tribulation period lying dead in the streets of Jerusalem for three and a half days. Well, today you can turn on the nightly news and it would say, you know, live from Jerusalem or live from Tel Aviv. We were reporting via satellite transmission. And you can beam up a signal 22,000 miles up, bounce it off of something, a small microwave, and it'll land someplace else in the world, and we instantly know what's going on somewhere else in the world. That's a, a fulfillment of prophecy. A nuclear power and, and uh, the atomic age that, that was ushered in in World War II, part of prophecy from Second Peter. We don't have time to go there, but all of this stuff is adding up. The morality, certainly, of the world today. You know, Christ said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be when the Son of Man cometh back. And, and the Bible says, back in Genesis 6, in the time of Noah, the, the imaginations of man's thoughts were evil continually. Every thought was a lewd, dirty, lustful, wicked thought. We're there, folks. We see the morality matching up in the days before the flood of Noah. And, of course, we could talk about a world that is wanting to come together now and, and globalism and all of that. And, and that's a fulfillment of prophecy. You know, people are buying items right now with this barcode on it, the, the UPC symbol, and it's, it's got the 666 right on it. And they don't even know they're using it right at the scanner. All of this is in place. We are in the last days. Now, the Bible gives us about 1,800 verses roughly that speak of Christ coming back the second time. That's six times more than there was verses that spoke of him coming the first time. And we know he came the first time. No question about that. Can we take it to the bank that he's coming again? Amen. Amen. He's coming back again. And the signs of the times are there. But you know, I could stand here and do a, a, a series, a conference on prophecy and not even touch the hem of the garment. There are so many things going on. But I, I think perhaps, and sadly perhaps, the greatest indicator of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is not so much in the heathen world, not so much the lost, but it's amongst God's people. It's amongst Christian people. And, and uh, what is happening to believers? What is happening to those who are, are just hanging on by a thread, those who are going AWOL, those who are dying on God, those who are not in church anymore? And you see it amongst churches, you see it amongst preachers and missionaries and believers well, let me just say this. That was all predict, uh, predicted. And in fact, in, in Luke chapter 18 and verse 8, Christ said, nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth. That's a sobering verse, isn't it? When the Son of Man comes back, will he find faith on the earth? And certainly you'd say, well, I, I would hope so amongst me and amongst uh, the church here, Lehigh Valley, but, but will he find faith in us? Will he find us faithful? In Matthew 24, 12, Christ says, And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. Iniquity is definitely abounding. Anyone with eyes can see that. What is happening with our love for the Lord? Is it waxing cold? Are we getting cold on God? Sadly, there are a number of folks that are not being faithful the way. And even, you know, I got saved a little over 40 years ago. The dynamic has changed so much in the faithfulness of Christians and those who are holding the banner high and in young men who are surrendering for the ministry. It's just different. It's, it's really changed in the last several decades. And, and normally, we look at the world and we blame them. We blame the preacher. We blame the church. But you know what the Bible says? In, in Jude one twenty one? it says, keep yourselves in the love of God. 
looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. You know, it's not the pastor's responsibility to keep you in the love of God or the missionaries. It's, it's your responsibility to have a walk with Christ, to spend time in that book every day and time on your knees every day and, and to keep yourself in the love of Christ. You know, on March 5th, 1981, I, and it's a long story, my testimony, I, I, uh, I rejoice just thinking about it, but I, I actually showed up at the office of a Baptist preacher. And I'd been raised in a, a mainline traditional denomination and, and uh, God got a hold of my heart. Long story short, after months of conviction, I, I knocked on the door of, of this preacher's office, and I, I looked totally different then, I'll just put it that way, and I, I sat down in his office and I said, what is all this born-again business? And, and that night he took the Word of God, and, and he, he took about two hours of his time and led me to Christ. I, I, I floated out of that office. I was so excited. And you know, I, I, I don't want to ever look back. I, I was even that night as I was listening on how to get saved, thinking of, of those people in my circle of influence that I knew who were lost. They were as lost as I was. And I was almost trying to memorize the verses that he was showing me because I knew they needed this. And, and folks, they still need this. They still need this. And I've spent the last 40-some years trying to get that truth to people. And I'm, uh, if you've done the math, I'm 63 here in a, in a few months. And I, I just want to say this. I know this. Unless I live to be 126, I'm, I'm closer to the end than the beginning. And I don't have as much time as, as I've lived. And as I look at the future and I put my eye on that, I just, I want to keep my eyes on the Lord. I don't want to get distracted. I, I want to finish strong. And I want God's people to finish strong as well. And to, and to stay faithful in these last days. And so as we look at these three verses here in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, I see, first of all, in here, what I call a powerful appeal. In verse 1, Paul says, Now, we beseech you, brethren. We beseech you, brethren. And then he goes on and he says, By the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him. Now, you know the story probably for the most part of, of why Paul is writing these epistles. Paul had been to Thessalonica and and Paul basically had been run out of town. He had not uh, spent the time with them that he had wanted to kind of bring them to the level they needed to be at. And, and, and so he's concerned about them. And as he writes back to them, he, he knows he's heard of, of, of those who have come in trying to bring apostasy and derail these folks. And, and so he uses a pretty strong appeal here. It's powerful. And he says in verse 1, Now we beseech you, brethren. We beseech you, brethren. He's... Uh, He's talking to them as brethren. And it's the Greek word Adelphus. It actually means womb brethren. If you can picture the tightness of heart of these people toward Paul. He calls them brethren. He says, I beseech you. You probably know that word means beg. He says, I beg you. He's begging them on the basis of something. And we read on and he says, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, there are times when we make appeals based on, you know, the, the decency of your grandma or your good name or whatever it might be. We do that. Based on this or that, we, we beg you. Do it for so-and-so, as it were. You know, there was a, a famous uh, college football game back in 19, I think, 26, 
between Army and, and, and Notre Dame. And, and we all know of the famous pep talk at halftime that Newt Rockney gave to his team as they were behind. He, he said, let's win this one for the Gipper, right? You remember that? Let's win this one for the Gipper. And what he's saying, he's making an appeal on behalf of their heart toward the Gip that they go out and they, they win this game. And we've all done that. So here's the incentive to stay faithful in, in verse 1. Paul says, now we beg you or beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the motivation. That's the reason. That's the inspiration. That's, that's the drive that Paul is using here. I'm, I'm appealing to you on behalf of the fact that Christ is coming back by the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, there are Christians, as I said a moment ago, going AWOL. There are Christians who are dying on God. They're enamored by the world. There are Christians who are all inward. They've lost their vision for souls. They're discouraged, and they're dragging their wagon. And Paul says to this group in verse 1, We beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the powerful appeal. He says, based on the fact that Christ is coming back, could you finish strong? Could you finish strong? Christ finished strong. And obviously, if there's anybody who, who could have gotten sidetracked due to all that came against him, he, he didn't get sidetracked. He never died on God. He never got inward. He kept his eyes fixed on the fields, and he went forward, and he kept going in spite of all that opposition. You know, the Bible has to say this in Hebrews 12, 3, for consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. And you know who the hymn is. Consider him, Christ, that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself. Have you ever had the world just come against you? You know, we talk about Mary, Mary, quite contrary. Just can't get in sync or in line. The Bible talks about the world contradicting us, the contradiction of sinners against us. Christ experienced that. Everywhere he went, they dog-tracked him amongst the Judean hills, trying to trip him up and trying to stop him. And, and right up to the cross, there was this contradiction of sinners against himself. And the Bible says, consider him. Consider him. Now, back to Paul's powerful appeal here in verse 1. He says, now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and notice, by our gathering together unto him. He's not only coming back. He's, he's gathering us together with him. We have the hope of his return, and that ought to be the incentive to help us to stay faithful and active and not backslide. We, write, we read in 1 John 2, And now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear... We may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Will we be where we ought to be doing what we ought to be doing when Christ comes back again? Or will we be ashamed before him at his coming? The second coming of Christ is a fact. In fact, from, from Adam to Malachi, it was found all over the Old Testament. And Jude in the New Testament writes this. He says, in Enoch also, the seventh from Adam prophesied of these saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints. Can you imagine the second coming of Christ being talked up going way back to Enoch? And though it's not recorded, it was a verbal thing. And, and they were talking about it way, way back then. 
Christ coming back again personally and, and visibly and in and, and, and great power and, and soon. And, and all the signs are there. Everything is in place. We read in Hebrews 10, for yet a little while. And he that shall come will come and will not tarry. And so Paul makes here, first of all, a uh, powerful appeal. But secondly, we see this perspective arrival, this perspective arrival. In verse 2, he goes on, That you be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. He says that you be not soon shaken. That local church was Shaken, and, and by the way, it was a local church. This is like, this is a local church. Now, this could have been Paul writing a letter to the Lehigh Valley Baptist Church. And, and apparently they were shook up. And there was a reason they were shook up. The devil had gotten in there and had shaken them up. No grass grows under the devil's feet. Never, never forget that. He is relentless. And I've been in the ministry long enough to, to know he never, never, never quits. And uh, those of you in ministry know that you basically are continually putting out fires all the time because the devil is always causing trouble. And he was here at the church at Thessalonica, causing trouble in this, this baby church, this, uh, this new church with false teaching and, and false doctrine. And, and they were even face, uh, faking Paul's endorsement and, and just never, ever, ever underestimate the deception of Satan. So this church at Thessalonica was in danger. And there was heresy seeping in already, and Paul was afraid they would uh, swallow it hook, line, and sinker. And somehow somebody had come and taught them that the rapture had already happened. They had missed the rapture, and uh, so they were, they were shaken by that. Paul's trying to fix that. Now, there are those, some, who believe that the rapture is going to happen before the tribulation period. There are some who believe it's going to happen in the middle of the tribulation period. There are some who believe it's going to happen at the end of the tribulation period. Um, some people insist that God's people are going to go through the tribulation period and uh, go through all that, that, that wailing and that doom and that gloom. And, and I don't know if, if they have a martyr's complex or, or uh, just insist on the drama or whatever. But Paul here is pleading for these folks not to move away from the truth that he had already taught them. Amen. And he's going to go on here and he's going to rehearse it once again. That Christ is coming at the beginning of the tribulation period. We're going to get raptured. You know, I was taught that back 40 plus years ago in Bible college. I've never left that. I've stuck with what I believed. I've stuck with the local church. It's the pillar and ground of the truth. Amen. And I don't plan on, on deviating from that. I, I know there's one thing for sure that you're not going to be able to predict when Christ is coming back. First of all, the tribulation, it's, it's a time of Jacob's trouble. It's, it's for Israel. It's not for Christian people. Secondly, you're not going to be able to tell when it's coming. In fact, in Acts 1, just before Christ ascended, he said in verse 7, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. We will never know. There's not going to be any tip-off. And so if things are really in chaos and in turmoil in this world for three and a half years, and you say, well, I believe it's in the middle of the tribulation period, you could say, well, it should be any time now. Or if the world is in chaos for seven years, you'd be able to say, okay, it's time now. But folks, there's not going to be any way for us to know. It is imminent. It could happen at any moment. 
And, and, and Christ said, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. Now, back in verse 2, Paul says that you be not soon shaken in mind, nor be troubled neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. He said that you be not soon shaken. There were some folks who were shook. We, we use that expression, don't we? Man, I just got all shook up. Or I was really shook. You know, back in, in 1943, there were 17 people who were admitted into a, they called it a lunatic asylum back in that day in, in Worcester, Massachusetts. And these are people, normal people, that, that were admitted because they were deranged with fear. They had gotten so fearful about Christ coming back, they thought it had already happened. You know, I find this warning in Ephesians 4, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight or the deceit of men. God's people should not be jerked around. You know, the, the, the true spirit of God, never forget this, is a calm spirit. It, it is a, a spirit of rest and quietness and, and one where we just go about discharged in our, our duties. It's, as far as fulfilling the Great Commission, we, we just go on doing it. We, we have a confidence that it's all going to be taken care of. Now, Paul, if anyone should have been in turmoil, it should have been the guy who was always being thrown in prison and whipped and, and shipwrecked and stoned and all of that. But, but, but Paul didn't worry about any of that. In fact, he gets some news that he might be reaching the end in Acts chapter 20. He says, but none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I've received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. There was a calm there. There was a peace there. Paul had that. And may I say to you tonight, actually the second coming of Christ should be reassuring to a child of God. If you have it in the proper perspective James 5.8 said, Be ye also patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. There ought to be a peace and a calm that God's got this thing, all right? Now, back here in our passage, there's, a, there's a, uh, three things mentioned, really, that are causing panic. And in verse number 2, Paul says that you be not soon shaken in mind nor be troubled. Notice these three, first of all, neither by spirit, by spirit. They had a fearful spirit, a fearful spirit. You know, there are a lot of false spirits out in the world. Uh, we read about that in First uh, John 4, 1. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. And so Paul said, be careful that you're not shaken in, in, in the spirit of fear. I have been controlled before, by the spirit of fear. It's a, it's a bad way to go. It's, a, it's not of God, I'll tell you that. We read in 2 Timothy 1.7 that God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. If you have a fearful spirit, that's not from God. God is, is not going to give you that kind of a spirit. You know, back in, I think, the 1700s, and it was someplace in, in the New England colonies out here, there was a, a certain state, and I forget the state, but they were, they were holding a, a, a meeting there, a parliamentary kind of a thing in the colonial days. And all of a sudden, this, 
this eclipse took place, and nobody knew it was coming. And so all of a sudden, it goes dark, almost fully dark in the afternoon. And, and everybody, of course, more of a Christian conscience at that time, thought, this is it. This is a judgment. You know, God is coming back. And, and so they're all scurrying about. And finally, the, the head of the parliament, whatever, stood up, and he said, folks, he said, let's, let's all sit back down again and bring in as many candles as we, we have. We don't know what's going on, but if, if this is it, and if Christ is coming back now, let's, let's be found going about discharging in our duties the way we ought to be. And you know, as God's people, I know these are dark days. They really are. But let's just go about our duties. We have a great commission. This is a missions conference. And, and, and we're to let our light so shine. Let's, let's just be that candle at this time. And, and so there's that, that false spirit that Paul talks about. He says in verse 2, Neither by spirit, notice secondly, nor by word, nor by word. And so there were some false words circulating and floating around and, and, and false direction toward this church. You know what Christ said in that same chapter, Matthew 24? Of the last days, he says, Then if any man shall say unto you, Lo, here is Christ, or there, believe it not. Believe it not. Folks, if it doesn't line up with this book, believe it not. And so he mentions in verse number 2, By spirit, nor by word. And then he says, Nor by letter. Notice the word as from us. Not actually from us, but as if it were by us. Because there were spurious gospels floating around. There were, there were false gospels rampant at that time. There are a lot of wannabes who were writing epistles. And, and, uh, and you've probably heard of some of these. The Gospel of Thomas and the Epistle of Bartholomew and, and uh, whatever. Basically, it got to where Paul had to write this. At the end of his epistle, in 2 Thessalonians 3, this one. He says in verse 17, the salutation of Paul with mine own hand, which is a token in every epistle, so I write. So that you'd know it's bonafide, it's certified, here's my signature. Otherwise, the devil was circulating some forgeries at that time. And uh, the lesson here, by the way, never forget this. Never ascribe something to God just because it's supernatural. I've talked to people, I had a vision, I I saw a sign, I heard a voice, I felt warm and tingly, or I had this impression, and I know it was of God. No, the the Bible says, believe not every spirit. There are many false spirits gone out in the world. And uh, God operates by faith, not all that stuff. And so you say, well, how do I know, how do I know if something really is of God or not? It's real simple. In Isaiah 8.20, it says, If they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. You know, the Bible says to to forsake the things of darkness as children of light. And the Bible says, if it doesn't line up with this word, it's darkness. And so you line it up with the word of God. You know, there are cults out there and they've written their their false books. They they have their other testament and their holy books and, and their writings and their revelations supposedly from God. God in wisdom closed down the Bible in the last chapter by saying, this is it. Any man adds unto it, I'm adding unto him the plagues in it. If you take from it, I'm going to take your part out of the book of life. And God is saying, no more revelation from heaven. Otherwise, it it leaves Pandora's box open and every joker comes around and, and says, well, I got a new revelation from God. God says, no, this is it. And so we see that Paul here describes this uh 
this threefold cord of deception in verse number two. And he says that you be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us as that the day of Christ is at hand. They thought they'd missed the rapture. They had not missed the rapture. And, uh, and so we find here the powerful appeal by Paul. We see, secondly, the perspective arrival of, of Christ. But we see, finally, the predicted apostasy. Now, there's a precursor, if I could call it that. There's a, there's a forerunner before Christ comes back. There's going to be this apostasy. It's, it's predicted. Notice in verse 3. Paul says, let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. He says to him, let no man deceive you. You say, well, wait a minute, preacher. He's talking to Christian people here. We, we can't be deceived, can we? Oh, yes, we can. Uh, Ephesians 4.32 says we can even give place to the devil. And Jeremiah 17 says, the heart is deceitful above all things. Not just the lost person's heart, our heart. That's why we need to stick with the book. And so Paul says, let no man deceive you because the devil loves to deceive even Christian people. And in 36 years of pastoring the same church, I've seen him fake a lot of Christian people out. I've seen him take a lot of Christian people down. I've seen him make a lot of Christian people statistics. Don't become one of them. Be not deceived, he says here. And so be on guard. Be on guard. You say, but, but this just seems right, or this just seems uh, godly, and this just seems, uh, you know, to line up. Be not deceived. When I was a, a lost young man, probably, um, I think it was in the late 70s, a, a song came out, and one line of the song said, it can't be wrong when it feels so right. And it was, it was sung by somebody who claimed to be a born-again Christian. It can't be wrong. If it seems so right, folks, the heart is deceitful above all things. Don't go by feeling. And I've seen countless people faked out. Now, in verse 3, he says that no man deceive you, notice, by any means, for that day. What day? That day. He's talking here about the coming tribulation. That day. You know, God operates down to days. If you've ever studied the book of Daniel, find in, in, in uh, chapter 9 and in the even previous chapters, it mentions this 70-year period. And, and we know that to be 70 heptads or, or years or 490 years. And that 490-year period started during the days of, of Ezra and Nehemiah, and it ticked off 483 years up until the day that Christ made his triumphant entry into Jerusalem. I, I was on that very path just a few weeks ago. I thought of him coming down the Mount of Olives into the Kidron Valley and up to the city walls and making that triumphant entry and going into the city and they rejected him. And he, he said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if thou hadst known this was your day, and it was. And that's where the stopwatch stopped. And now we have these seven years left that's the book of the Revelation. It, it, it elaborates on those seven final years. And in Matthew 24, 21, Jesus says, For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. And it's coming, that seven-year period. The great tribulation being the last half of it. But 
in, in verse 3, Paul says, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come. Now notice these words, except there come a falling away first. Apostasia. Apostasia. It, it means a departure from doctrine. It means a departure from standards. It means a departure from holiness. If, if this is the pillar here of truth, apostasia is when you move away from it or you, you fall away from it. That's what it means to fall away. There are things taking place in this world today that were unthinkable back in the days of grandpa and grandma. And some of you lived long enough to know what I'm talking about. You know, what constitutes a family today is actually being debated. Uh, it's like serious? Is it not obvious? And, and uh, modesty and decency and morality and appropriateness, and they've all gone out the window. And, and we can't even identify what a man is anymore, what a woman is anymore. I mean, it's just, it's crazy. It's, it's insanity. It's the day and age in which we're living in. And there are things that are going on, and nobody can blush anymore. And the Bible talks about that. And, and the problem is, you know, God has a standard. It's, it's let's just say here, and it's, it's always up here and it never moves. And this is where God-fearing people used to operate. And the world would operate down here, and, and the world's always going down. The problem is, we're going down with them. We're just maintaining this gap or this cushion, and, and we're not even realizing that we have lower standards today as Christian people than lost people had back in the days of grandpa and grandma. We have lost it. That's apostasia, apostasy. Christianity has been reinvented, basically. And there are those who adhere to the Bible. They talk about being saved. They baptize by immersion, but... It's a new evangelical movement that does not align with the Word of God. And in their mind, they think, you know what, this is normal. This is an outpouring of of the Spirit. This is a revival. And, you know, we find some warnings. In 1 Timothy 4, it says, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly, or clearly, that in the latter times, that's now, some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Paul says, the Spirit speaketh distinctly. There's no missing this. And we have a, a, uh, a trendy, relevant, hip, cool, in vogue, politically correct kind of a Christianity today that is another imitation of the world. May I say this? The last thing the world needs is another imitation of itself from God's people. Right. Let's not resort to their methods Amen. We read this in 2 Timothy 4, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth, this book, and shall be turned unto fables. You know, the martyrs of old, or Anabaptist forefathers, would be spinning in their graves if they could see what Christianity had become today. We read this in 2 Timothy 3, This know also, that in the last days perilous times Shall come. It speaks of having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. And we think that today we have to entertain people. I was witnessing to a lady all the way here, at least all the way to Chicago from Fargo. And um, she was in one of those churches and she even said, you know, I, I leave so many Sundays feeling like it was just a big production. And that's true. We're not interested in amusing goats or entertaining the lost. We, 
we want to preach the word, right? And, and there's this form of godliness today, but it denies the power thereof. God help us. There's so much at stake in these last days. And we have a generation that has been chloroformed spiritually. And this has now become the, the norm. This worldly, new evangelical kind of Christianity. In Matthew 24, Christ said there shall arise false Christs and false prophets. And shall show great signs and wonders. Insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. And that's the day we're living in. Now, it's all going to usher in Satan's Superman. He's mentioned here this, this key culprit, the Antichrist. In verse number 3, Paul says, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. The man of sin. You've heard of the Schwann man, right? You've heard of the uh, Marlboro man, right? This is the man of sin. That's, that's his distinction. That's, that's his title. He's, he's the epitome of, of sin. We know him to be the beast. We know him to be the Antichrist, the one world ruler. And we live in a world today that is waiting for, for some type of a savior to come back. And obviously, in our world, it's Christ. We're waiting for the Lord to come back. The Jews are still waiting on their Messiah to come back. The Buddhist world is waiting for what they call the fifth Buddha. And the Muslim world is waiting for the Matai. And the, the Hindu world is waiting for Krishna. And uh, you've got all these, these people waiting for this Savior to come back. But they're all upstaged by this man of sin. This man of sin. The beast. The Antichrist. You know, world history began with the sin of man. And it's going to end with the man of sin. You know, they say we've evolved from a, a, an animal and, and, in, and basically our, our evolution came from some kind of a beast. But the truth be known, that's where we end up. The man of sin. And, and this isn't some kind of a conspiracy thing or, or trilateral thing or whatever it might be. This is something the Bible tells us about. It was hatched out of hell and the, the forces of Satan are at work today bringing us to this point to receive this. To receive this. And just because you don't believe in this, it doesn't mean it's not going to happen. It's going to come to pass as God said so. This, this man of sin. Satan's master plan involves a master man. The man of sin. The son of perdition. We read in Daniel 11 of him. It says, And the king shall do according to his will. And he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god. And shall speak marvelous things against the god of of God's the son of perdition. That's where we're at right now. He may be alive and well someplace in the world today. We don't know, quite likely. Now, here we are on the threshold of all of this, and I close with a few thoughts here. First of all, we don't know when this is all going to happen, do we? And so we, we just stay faithful. In fact, in Luke 12 40, Jesus said, Be ye therefore ready also. For the Son of Man cometh at an hour when you think not. And so basically, have the antenna up. Let's be on our toes. This is all coming into play. If you're saved and you know the Lord, you're going to be gone with the rapture. Revelation 3.10. The Bible says, Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them 
that dwell upon the earth. We're going to be gone. God's going to keep us from that hour of temptation. So, number one, we don't know when it's going to happen. Let's just stay faithful up until it does. Secondly, let's remember that we are the light of the world. And, and that's our job is to, to illuminate a very, very, very dark world at this time. Titus 2 says, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. So be part of the solution. Thirdly, be part of the solution. Don't contribute to the apostasy at hand. In Hebrews, I'm sorry, Titus 2 and verse 11, it speaks of looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's not contribute to the apostasy. Let's be looking up. Let's be the light we ought to be. Hebrews 3.12 says, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. We are living in a world that's not going to get better. And uh, we don't have to wonder, according to the Bible, what direction it's going. You say, Pastor, you think things are going to get better or worse? Well, they're going to get worse, but... But let me just say this, though they're getting worse, though they're getting darker, they're getting gloriously darker. And that means Christ is coming back. In Luke 21, 28, and I close with this, Jesus says, and when these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. We're talking about staying faithful in the last days, and really the, the most compelling indicator ought to be the signs of times going on around us. And if there's ever been a time when we need to be the light that we ought to be, it's the day and age in which we're living in. God help us to to be that light and to let our light shine as Christ told us to.